Welcome to Cornerstone Community Church. You're listening to Not Shaken with Pastor Brian Foreman. We'd like to follow along. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 through chapter 3, verse 5. Next section in our Stand Firm series. And if you want to read along and you are using a device, you can choose the New International Version. That's what I will be looking. And another thing that you can do is I would like to have other people reading Scripture. We used to do that pretty often, uh, but we kind of got out of the habit. So if you would like to be one of those people who would like to read the Scripture on a Sunday morning, the focus passage, then let me know, and we will figure out a way to make that happen. So... Uh, you can let me know, you can text the church number, uh, however you want to let us know, that would be great. So let's go ahead and read, this is again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, and then going through the fifth verse of chapter 3, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Verse 13, and we thank God continually because... When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or our crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Chapter 3. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted and it turned out that way as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and for preserving your word for us. And I pray that as we look at it today, that you will speak by the power of your Holy Spirit to each person who is here Help each of us to get something that we need out of this. Encourage, challenge, whatever we need by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would draw people to yourself and that as a result of our being here today, that no one will be able to leave without saying that they have encountered you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. So before we look at this uh, more in depth, I want to give you the previously on Stand Firm that I try to do to keep you up to date with what's going on. Again, you can listen to all the previous messages in this series on our website at cornerstonenh.org forward slash listen. And the idea of Stand Firm is from First Thessalonians. We're going through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. And the key verse is chapter three, verse eight, that says, for now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. That is the pastor's heart that you hear from Paul, that because the church was doing well, the people were standing firm. As a result of that, we really live. And so over the course of the intro to this letter, you have who it's from, who it's to, the salutation. Then he gets into a Thanksgiving section, which talks about how faith was at work within them. Because when you have true faith, it is going to make a difference in the way that you live. And he starts out his Thanksgiving section by saying, we remember before God, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, words, their faith was making a difference in the way that they lived. In fact, it was making such a difference that people were talking about it. And that should be the case for all of us, that we would have a buzzworthy faith, that it would create a buzz. People would talk about it. And what were they saying about their faith? They tell, the people were talking about how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There was, was a faith worth talking about. And then we said that uh, we talked about discipleship and that it was example-based discipleship, that they would say, we're going to follow Jesus, watch how we do that, and then you do the same thing, and that's how you learn to follow Jesus. And so it what were they saying? Again, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and so became a model to all the other believers. There was an example-based discipleship going on. So he started out with this welcoming. Then he gives the Thanksgiving section, which turns into a little bit of their history and what was going on at the church. But you might remember that the first message that we gave in this series was about facing opposition and difficulty and discouragement. And what we said was that difficulty doesn't mean you didn't hear from God. And we get this from the story of Paul and his cohorts, the other apostles who were traveling around. They were facing opposition and difficulty at every step, but it didn't mean that God wasn't in what they were doing. And so we're kind of come around to this theme again today in talking about opposition. This is the way the Apostle Paul described it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. Philippi was the Macedonian city that they visited before they went to Thessalonica. As you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. And that's what we're talking about today, opposition. We're talking about opposition, what it is, what you can expect, what kind of opposition can you face, and then what can you do with it so that you are able to stand firm even if you face opposition. Just a couple of weeks ago, well, it's earlier in the summer now, it's probably been a little bit uh, ago, we went to, uh, pastors were invited to a breakfast at a local ministry, and uh, when the executive director of the ministry was talking about some of the opposition that they've been facing in their ministry, and it's evidently been a very difficult and 
arduous time for their ministry. But I loved what she said. She said, even though we are facing all of this opposition, what's happened is we are stirred, not shaken. Stirred, not shaken. And I love that. I love that. Because we know that when we face opposition and difficulty, that sometimes it can get kind of discouraging. And it can make you want to feel like giving up. And you just don't know if it's worth pressing on. And what she was saying was that the opposition that they were facing has actually stirred them. It has emboldened them. And they are not shaken. And so that's what I want for us as well, that we're going to face, since we're going to face opposition, how are we going to face it? What are the things that we need to know? What are the things that we need to remember so that the opposition that we face can stir us rather than shake us, stir us rather than shake us, stirred, not shaken. So we are talking about opposition and the basic bottom line that I want to give you is only two words. It should be very easy to remember. We're talking about opposition. What are we saying about opposition? You can expect it. Expect opposition. Expect opposition. Now, you might be thinking, oh, that's not very deep. Uh, you know, I, could, I probably could have figured that out on my own, that we are going to uh, encounter opposition. But here's why that is beneficial to me and to you. Because when we are prepared for something, we tend to face it better. And it's kind of like when you get a vaccination. What do they do? They give you a little bit of the disease so that your body builds up a resistance to it so that when you face the actual disease, it can overcome it. It's not going to overcome you. And what the Apostle Paul did to and for that church at Thessalonica, you remember the story when he first went there, they got a little bit of time and a little bit of response, but then he was driven out of the city by opposition. So he had only a short period of time and he had to cram as much as he possibly could in that short period of time when the church was just getting established. And one of the things that he did, as we will see as he recounts this, is he told them to expect opposition because he didn't want it to come as a surprise. He didn't want them to be thrown off by it. And so by telling them to expect opposition and explaining to them that that is just a normal part of what it means to follow Christ, he was in essence inoculating them against it. And so that's what we want to do with this today. We're talking about uh, opposition and to expect it. Now, uh, the Apostle Paul went through a lot of suffering, faced a lot of opposition, and talked about it a lot in his letters that we find in the New Testament. And in fact, he said this. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his apprentice Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone, how many people? Everyone, right? Everyone who does what? Wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Everyone who is following Jesus, everybody who claims the name of Christian will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that's the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul was emphasizing as the opposition was arising 
in Thessalonica. And so the first thing that I want you just to remember is that opposition is inevitable. It doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. In fact, it might mean that you are doing something right. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Opposition is inevitable. And so in telling the story of how they uh, received the gospel and what the apostles did after they left Thessalonica, he talks about this. He says, we sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. So they had been driven out of Thessalonica. The apostle Paul goes down into Athens. Timothy meets up with him there. They're concerned about what's been going on at the church in Thessalonica since they were facing such opposition. So they decided to send Timothy back to Thessalonica to strengthen and encourage their faith. And why? So that no one would be unsettled by these trials. They didn't want them to be shaken by those trials. Then he goes on to describe how he was inoculating them against it. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. Opposition is inevitable. In fact, when we were with you, what were they doing when they were with them? We kept telling you that we would be persecuted and it turned out that way as you well know. He's saying, he's building his credibility with them. He's saying, look, When we were there, we told you to expect this. We saw it while we were there. I was driven out. It happened after I was gone. This is what you know. And so we want you to expect it. We want to understand this isn't something weird. This isn't something unusual. This is exactly what you should expect when you seek to follow Jesus. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's church. There's that idea of imitation or modeling. It's the example-based discipleship again. Became imitators of God's churches in Judea. He's saying, this happened to you in Thessalonica, but it was the same kind of thing that was common if anyone is going to follow Jesus. In fact, it's the same thing that happened to the first followers of Jesus who got started in Jerusalem in Judea, which the churches of in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things these churches suffered from the Jews. In other words, you accepted Christ, you wanted to follow Jesus, you got opposition from your people. That should be expected. It's the same thing that happened to the first believers when they started following Jesus, they got opposition from their people as well. Now, it's interesting when he talks and describes what was going on there. I just want to read this to you again. I'm not going to pull it up on the screen, but I just want to remind you what he says about it. He says, uh, what, what did they do? What kind of suffering? What kind of opposition did they find? Verse 15, who killed the Lord Jesus... This is what the, the, their own people did in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. In other words, there's a pattern here. Most importantly, they rejected the Messiah. They killed the Lord Jesus. But that was one with a pattern. They had been doing that to all the prophets that God had sent them before that. And they continued the process after Jesus by driving us, the apostles and prophets of the New Testament, out of Jerusalem. 
And then he, he says, they displease God and are hostile to everyone. In other words, it's not just their own people that they are hostile with. They're hostile to everyone. And then he describes what he means, verse 16, in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. So he says, they not only were hostile to their own people, they killed their Messiah, they've been killing the prophets, they drove us out. They're hostile to everyone. They don't even want you Gentiles to be saved as well. They're constantly opposing and they're building up their sins into this heap and God is going to eventually deal with it. Now, the interesting thing is, even though the Apostle Paul is not following Jesus before the cross and resurrection, he certainly knew and interacted with the apostles and disciples who had been, and he would have been familiar with Jesus' teaching. Now, I've told you before that 1 Thessalonians is probably the first written part of the New Testament in existence. In other words, the Gospels tell about stuff that happened earlier than this, but they were written later than this. So this is one of the, this is probably the first document that's in our New Testament that was written. And I believe even at that time, that uh, it's, it's obvious to me that all the stories and teaching about Jesus was already in circulation and already known, and the Apostle Paul would have heard these stories from the other disciples who were walked with Jesus. And this, I think, is an interesting insight because what he's doing here, I believe, is mimicking or re retelling some of Jesus' teaching. The parallels, I think, are pretty striking. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus, after having some difficulty with the Pharisees and scribes, the leading religious people of his day and of his people, he starts going through these woes. He's pronouncing judgment. Seven woes are found in W-O-E, are found in the 23rd chapter of Matthew. And there are striking parallels between what Jesus says and what the Apostle Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is the way it starts out. Jesus speaking, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. What did he just say? They try to keep the Gentiles out. They're shutting the door to the kingdom of God. He says, you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. They are hostile to all men and trying to prevent us from letting the Gentiles know how to be saved. And then a little bit later, he says, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, literally our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. In other words, Jesus saying, you build these ornate tombs to honor the prophets. But then when you say, oh, our fathers did this, but we would never act like that, you're actually acting like that. He says, so you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants, the sons, literally, of those who murdered the prophets. 
You see, in biblical idiom, to be a son of something or someone is to be one in character with them. And so they say, oh, our fathers killed the prophets, but we would never act like that. And he said, you just said you're sons of your fathers, and that's exactly what you are. You are the same, and you're acting the same way. So when the, he says they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, he's, he's um, duplicating, re- referring to, I think, the teaching of Jesus. And then he says, therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers In other words, I'm going to send more. This is future looking for Jesus. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And they drove us out as well. They were driven out of Jerusalem and then driven out of Thessalonica by the Gentiles. And so there's just this repeated pattern. And I think it's very likely, very possible that Paul has in mind the teaching of Jesus. And this is the earliest, this is just within years, decades of the actual events. And so already before the gospel of Matthew was written, before anything else was written down, these stories were known and preserved and told. And so in the conclusion, and this is kind of interesting, remember at the end of this, he says, um, They're heaping up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Interesting. What does he mean? I think he's, again, referring to the conclusion of this teaching because here's how it ends. And so Jesus says, upon you, upon this people, upon you, the the leaders of the people in Jerusalem right now, will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. In other words, God is getting ready to pronounce judgment, and he's going to hold you responsible. And so how does he describe it? From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. Now, interesting, why these two people? Well, they are two murderers that are recorded in the Old Testament. Abel was the very first murder, of course, Cain and Abel, so we know that one. And then who's this guy, Zechariah? Well, he was the guy who was murdered at the end of 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament. Now, why these two people? Well, in our Old Testament, the way it's organized, it begins with Genesis and ends with Malachi, one of the minor prophets. However, in the Jewish Bible, the, it begins with Genesis just like ours, but the last book of the Bible for them is Second Chronicles. And so he lists the very first murder all the way to the last one in sacred history. And he says, you have been doing this since the beginning of time, and now God is going to hold you responsible. He's tired of waiting and he's going to pronounce judgment. His wrath is coming. Most people understand that reference to the fact that in 70 AD, the Romans finally got fed up. Another rebellion had happened in the land of Israel, and they came in and they tore down this magnificent temple, and they drove the Jews out of their homeland and and capital city, and made it a capital offense for a Jewish person to become to come within sight of the city of Jerusalem. It was a traumatic and watershed event, and many understand 
much of the prophecy that happens and is recorded in the New Testament as being fulfilled with that judgment. So I just think that's kind of cool, don't you? So here we have the Apostle Paul in one of the, the first letters written down that we have preserved, and already the teaching of Jesus is well known and informing their theology and what he says to them. And so this is the conclusion of Jesus' teaching. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. In other words, you guys, you, you guys aren't going to leave the earth before God is finally going to have his say about all of this. And so this is the kind of thing that the apostle Paul would have told them. And he's saying there's a parallel here. Uh, and this is one of a set of things that happen when you are following Jesus. The original disciples and Jesus himself faced opposition from his people. You are going to face opposition, are facing opposition from your people as well. Now, I'm going to take Justin aside to make a very important point because sometimes in history and in church history, the idea that the Jewish leaders and the Jews killed the, their Messiah has been used as an excuse for and a prompt for anti-Semitism. That is ridiculous. That is completely unchristian, and it has no place in the life of a believer. I like this tweet. It's by Ed Steltzer, who is a Christian author and professor and teacher. He put this out on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. Racism, white nationalism, white supremacy all make no sense if you are a Christian. Why? Because as I read to you last week in two contents and two realities, the idea of loving one another is based on the fact that we as believers know whom people are. People are unique in that they were created in the image of God and they are worthy and valuable. And if you believe the Bible, then we're really, there's only one race as far as I'm concerned, and that's the human race. We all have our father in Adam, and so we are all related, we are all brothers and sisters, and racism is just ridiculous and stupid. And that's what he says. So Christians literally worship a dark-skinned Jewish savior from the Middle East. Not only is racism sinful, it's remarkably stupid for anyone who identifies as a Christian. And that's what our stance should be. So in case you were wondering, in case you look at this and say, oh, the Jews killed Jesus, we should not like them. That's stupid. Don't do that. Don't do anything that contributes to that. Stand against it, please. So that's my little rant. All right, second point. Opposition is spiritual. So opposition is inevitable. Prepare for it. It's coming. You're going to face it. But it's important for us to realize that opposition in the Christian life is a spiritual opposition as well. This is hinted at in this narrative that the Apostle Paul gives. He says, for we wanted to come to you. They had been driven out. They were concerned about the Thessalonican church. They wanted to go back and encourage them, but they, didn't, they, they couldn't. 
He doesn't give any details as to exactly what he means by this, but he says, we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. Now, does that mean that Paul set out from Athens and he was on the road and all of a sudden this guy in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork showed up in the road and said, you, can't, you shall not pass? I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's talking about. However, he saw, he saw in the opposition that he was facing, he recognized that there was a spiritual dimension to it as well. And so he was able to say, Satan blocked our way. We wanted to do this. We wanted to be with you. We wanted to encourage you. We wanted to make up what was lacking and we weren't able to do when we were there, but Satan blocked us. And then describing his concern later, he says something very similar. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. He saw in the opposition and in their decision, do we keep following Jesus in spite of this or do we just kind of say, oh, okay, easy life, I'm going to back up from that. He saw in that a spiritual dimension that the tempter was tempting them. And he makes a similar type of point in the letter to the Ephesian church in talking about the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You see, because our opposition is spiritual, we have to fight a spiritual battle. And in order to fight a spiritual battle, you need spiritual armor. And so he tells them, to put on the full armor of God. Uh, and then he goes on to say explicitly what we've been hinting at. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And it's important for us to remember that because when we recognize that everyone that we encounter is created in the image of God and has inherent worth because of that, when they oppose us, when they do things to harm us, sometimes we can look at them as the enemy rather than as victims of the deception and evil that is in the spiritual world. Now, there are some people that do evil things and are evil. I get that. But to say it's all just their decision or it's all spiritual, I don't think is the Christian worldview. I think that our spirit and our body and the physical and the spiritual are all intertwined and inseparable. And so what he's reminding them is when you encounter opposition in flesh and blood, there's more going on. But our opposition is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual realm. And so when you encounter opposition, which you're going to, it's important to remember that the opposition is really a spiritual opposition, and you have to fight a spiritual battle. And so that's why he tells them to put on the full armor of God, to equip yourself spiritually so that you can go into battle and stand successfully in it. And so this week in the On Your Own section, I'm sending you to Ephesians chapter 6 so that you can look at this more in depth and understand what that uh, looks like and what kind of equipment you need in order to fight that battle. And then lastly, I want you to remember that opposition isn't fatal. Opposition isn't fatal. You do not have to fight. You're going to face it. There's a uh, 
there are people battles, there's a spiritual battle going on, but as a believer in Jesus Christ, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, and you do not have to fall in the face of it. Remember what the Apostle Paul sent Timothy to do, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. We want you to be stirred up. We don't want you to be shaken. And so when he says to put on the full armor of God back in Ephesians chapter 6, it ends this way. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you won't, you're going to crumble? No. You're going you're gonna to fail because you, you, you don't have the power you need? No. So you may be able to, what's that word? Say it out loud. Stand, thank you. To stand, to stand firm, perhaps. Your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, you can stand against opposition. You can survive it. You can thrive. You can, you can really live, uh, and in, even in the face of opposition, and that's what we are talking about. And if you know to expect it, if you know that it's inevitable, if you know that there's a spiritual dimension as well, and therefore you know how to equip yourself, you can be inoculated against the opposition. And you can stand. It doesn't have to knock you out. When you face doubts about your faith, when you face persecution, when people are uh, fighting you because of that, then take that as encouragement. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus is going to face suffering, persecution, opposition. But you can stand and you can even thrive in the midst of it if you know to expect it and know how to handle it. So I hope you were taking notes. I hope you have that bottom line and the three points because what I want to challenge you to do this week is this. You're probably... At some point, if the law of averages works out, if you continue to live for the next week, you are probably going to face some kind of opposition. And so when you encounter opposition this week, I want you to remember and remind yourself of what you know about opposition. So take those notes. Take, post them somewhere where you're going to see them. And then I just want you to be on the, on the lookout. You know, Maybe you'll have a great week. Maybe you won't find any opposition. But but then something happens, and then you're like, oh, okay, here's what, here's what we were talking about on Sunday, and I want you to go back to that and say, okay, here's the situation. What do I need to remember in the midst of it? For some of you, it might be something like, okay, it's that person again, and I have to remember that the opposition is really spiritual, and I should be praying for that person, not getting angry at that person. I should recognize that there's a spiritual battle going on, and so I need to remember to fight that spiritual battle in a spiritual way. I need to pray for that person. And whatever the case may be, you're, going to, uh, you're doing well, and you're, you think you're doing what God wants you to do, and then you face some kind of roadblock. And you're like, why, Lord? Every time I try to do something for you, every time I think I'm going in the right direction, I encounter a wall or a roadblock or I trip over something. What are you trying to tell me? It could be that you just need to remember opposition is inevitable. 
If you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you are going to encounter that kind of stuff. You don't need to be thrown off by it. You don't need to be shaken by that. Let it stir you up. Let let it remind you. You're doing something valuable. You're pursuing something worthwhile. Be encouraged in the midst of that. You see, I don't think the enemy is going to do much, pay much attention to you if you're not trying to do something good, right? Take it, take it as a as a compliment. You know, I'm facing opposition. Woo! You know, I'm doing the right thing. I'm going in the right direction. I'm making a difference. So, whatever it is, take those notes, put them somewhere, keep it in your mind, so that when you encounter opposition this week, you will remember and remind yourself of what you need to know. Because my pastor's heart will really live when I know that you are standing firm. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different to end today's service. I'm going to invite the band to come back up, and we're going to end with a song that I think will reinforce what we've been talking about, and that is the idea that we, we are facing difficulty in our world, but it's not final. It's not fatal. We can be overcomers in Christ Jesus. That first piece of armor that you're going to read about this week is the helmet of salvation. And that is probably the most crucial part because you can lose an arm, but you can't lose your head, right? At least not literally. The helmet of salvation, what does that mean? It means that all of us need to know what team we're on. All of us need to be sure that we have crossed the line of faith, that we are on God's side. And the way that we do that is by saying yes to Jesus. Yes, I believe that you are the son of God. Yes, I believe that you lived a perfect life and died a death you did not deserve so that I could receive life and forgiveness and grace that I could never earn. And then we respond by saying yes to Jesus. One of the ways I talk about what we're about, we just want more and more people saying yes to Jesus more and more often. Say that first yes to Jesus. Make sure that your helmet of salvation is on because without that, you will not be able to stand. It, the attacks will be fatal because you don't have the protection, the spiritual protection you need by being a part of the body of Christ, by being adopted into God's family. Make sure that you, that you settle that. And if you have any questions about that, you can talk to me or any of our leaders We'll be glad to make sure that you can go home knowing that you have that assurance of salvation, that you are on the Lord's side, and then when you face that opposition, you can thrive. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are reminded of your worthiness, your power, the victory that you won for us on the cross, and that while it's true that we will face opposition in this world, you have overcome the world. So we thank you for that. I pray, Lord, for myself, for these, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we will live in that victory, secure in the salvation that you've provided, uh, assured of your blessing and goodness towards us, and walking in that victory day by day. Remind us of the things that we need to know in the moment so that we might glorify you, so that our light might shine and that people will see it and people will know that you are a glorious, victorious God. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 Have a great week. 